Now let me throw out a, a hypothetical to you. Hypothetically speaking, if your toddler uh, somehow gets a, a hold of a sharp and dangerous knife because you accidentally left it too close to the edge of the counter in the kitchen, what do you do? And, and I say this hypothetically because, of course, none of you, Alyssa and I, none of us have ever had that kind of experience where our kids have gotten a hold of something dangerous ever. So just kind of put your mind there with me. Hypothetically speaking, what do you do? Now, what you want to do is scream, right? You want to say, drop that knife. But anybody who's been in this situation, which again, isn't you, it isn't me, but if you find yourself in that situation, you probably know that there's a better approach to yelling and screaming, and that is to approach it slowly and calmly and with confidence in your voice. Encourage your child, give daddy the sharp and dangerous knife. That's what you're supposed to do. See, there's usually more than one way to handle a tense situation. And often the natural tendency that we have to handle something is, is not necessarily the best way to handle it, especially if our ultimate goal is that we want to prevent people from getting hurt. Well, today is the second Sunday in what we're calling in this fall series, Messy Grace. We're going to be taking a journey Throughout the New Testament letter, the Apostle Paul writes to the ancient church in Corinth known as 1 Corinthians. Now, Corinth was a prominent city in ancient Greece, and our reading today begins just a few verses into the letter as Paul is diving into what I would call a very tense situation that is taking place in the Corinthian church. Now, if you missed last Sunday, you can go online, you can listen to that message, but Paul himself planted this church. That's what we learned, and it was only a few years before he's writing this letter. And in the opening verses of chapter 1, we see that Paul loves these people, that, that he cares deeply for them, and he is clearly seeing signs that, that God's presence is in their midst, that God is with this people in this church, even though at the very same time, they're also very far from perfect. There's some imperfections. And so the, the rest of the letter is Paul addressing these imperfections or these messes, as we're going to call them throughout this series. And he is going to address them by bringing to bear God's grace. And that's why we're calling this series Messy Grace, because it's God's grace that answers the messes in the lives that we find ourselves in, both in the church, but also as we find ourselves in life and relationship and family and friends and work and everything else. And the first mess that Paul is going to tackle is the mess of significant division among the people that he's writing to. And I think to myself, if there is anything that all of us can relate to right now in the world we're living in, it is living in the midst of community that is deeply divided. And so there's going to be a lot here that God can speak into our lives that I think is very applicable. And let's, let's, let's dive into it. Let's look again at verse 10 of chapter 1. Paul says this. He says, I appeal... To you, If you have your own Bible and you have a pen or pencil, I want you to circle the word appeal. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there would be no divisions among you, but that you would be perfectly united in mind and in thought. Now, 
this word appeal, and the reason I told you to circle it, because I wanted to explain something. In, in the original Greek, the New Testament, this letter was written in Greek originally, not English. We have to translate it. And the same Greek word that's used here in, in translating appeal is, is probably a word that I would use to describe the approach I would take if my toddler had a sharp and dangerous knife in their hand, which again, I've never experienced it, neither of you, but hypothetically speaking, right? To appeal to someone is not to yell and scream. It's not authoritarian, um, but in, in other places in the New Testament, we get a glimpse in other ways the translators translate it, and, and seeing that the same word is translated as implore, as plead, as, as invite, as urge, as beg. Um, and if we want to really understand Paul's heart behind this word, we can look at this letter. And just a few chapters later, in chapter 4, Paul uses the same Greek word when he's fleshing out how to respond with humility to opposition. Take a look at this in chapter 4, verse 12. He says, When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer Kindly, Same Greek word is translated there. Answer kindly. It's the same word that's used and translated as appeal in chapter 1. And I share all of this at the onset of what Paul is about to say to show you that this is the tone that Paul is using to speak into a divided group of people. A divided group of people that he deeply loves and that he desperately wants them to be united again. And, and what we learn here is that in a situation like this, tone is every bit as important as the content that we're about to share. And the same is true for us. The same is true for us in our relationships and our divisions. Your posture, your posture when you're speaking to people that don't agree with you and that don't agree with one another is so critical. And it's so critical, especially in the world that we're living in right now. And, and I just want to get a little personal for a minute, but I think a lot of you probably will agree with me um, that as a pastor... And, and as, a, as a friend, as a neighbor, as a family member, as, as all of those things, one of the, the most relationally discouraging things that, that I have experienced over the last 18 to 24 months um, that have had to do with everything we've experienced collectively as, as a community and as a world um, has not been, I've not been most discouraged by, by the different people that have different opinions about different things. Uh, but what has bothered me, what's been the most discouraging to me more than anything else, has been the posture that so many of us, myself included, have found ourselves using to disagree with people. It's the posture that we've been using. And, and, and what I mean is that so many of us, again, I have done this too, so let me put myself first on the list. So many of us have resorted to sharing our own perspective in a tone that is condescending to the people that don't agree with us. In a posture that is heartless, with an attitude that is downright mean. This is what's going on everywhere. And it's in those moments that, that I have found myself so discouraged discouraged in myself, but also discouraged in so many others. And I share this because it is in direct contrast 
to what we're going to see the Apostle Paul doing in his experience. He does the exact opposite as he comes into the situation and speaks into the divide. He appeals to these people. And he does so from a place of love. Now, he's got passion, and he's got conviction, and he's got a very clear message to share, but he does that with love. And we see signs of that continue. Look at verse 11. It says this. He says, my brothers and sisters. If you have your Bible in front of you, you'll see this is the second time in two verses that he has referred to the people he's writing to as brothers and sisters. And the reason why, we touched on this a little bit last Sunday, is that he is reminding them of his relationship with these people because being reminded of your relationship with the people that you're divided with, it not only helps you keep your posture and keep your own attitude in check, but it will also make it more likely that they might actually see your perspective when they remember who you are to them and who they are to you. And if you don't believe me, um, next time you're feeling divided uh, with somebody close to you, maybe it's your, your in-laws or your parents or your child or even your spouse, try this. When you're in the heat of a disagreement, stop and put your hand on their shoulder and say, you're my wife, you're my son. You're my mom. Now, it might sound silly and it might feel uh, a little cheesy to consider doing that. And it might not change what you have to say to them. I, I actually, I'm sure it probably won't. But as cheesy as it sounds, I can almost guarantee it will change the way that you say it. It will change the tone in the way that you have that conversation and the way they receive it. And that's what Paul is doing here. He says, I'm not coming to you as your pastor. I'm not coming to you as a Pharisee. I'm not coming to you as a political leader. I'm not coming to you as an authoritarian. I'm coming to you as your brother. We're brothers and sisters, and I love you, and I'm worried about you because I've heard some things that are going on, and, and now we're going to see what those things are. Look at verse 11. He says, he says this, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household. We don't, we don't really know much about Chloe's household. We just know that clearly there's some Christians in the church there. And, and so they've gotten a message back to Paul, and they have informed me, Paul says, that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas, which is Peter, the disciple. Another one says, I follow Christ. And so now we're getting into the heart of the matter. What specifically is dividing these people? First of all, none of the men that are listed are bad. And, and we have no indication that any of these men are, are themselves trying to lead um, a group of people that says we're better than that group. It's not like Paul's trying to lead a group that says we're better than the people that, that have a relationship with Peter or whatever. That's not what's happening here. It's that there are people within the Corinthian church that have decided on their own that they're going to get behind a specific person as their leader and they're going to have the attitude that says because they're behind this one, we're better than these people. That, that somehow this is the, the best church, this is the best group of people to be a part of at the expense of the others. And, and I, I, I actually find this ironic, right? It's not irony though. God knew we were going to be studying this and knew that, that I would be studying this and, and preaching it to you 
on what possibly, and actually if you're watching this, it is the last Sunday that I'm going to be preaching with you before I'm going to be gone for six or so weeks. Um, because when Alyssa has uh, the baby or has had the baby and I'm going to be gone for a while, um, I know that as I'm gone, some of you are, are going to say, man, I really miss Pastor Tom. I mean, I know you're just, you're going to do that. You're going to say, I don't know what it is. It's something about his his bald head, maybe, and, you know, he's got such such resilient faith. He still roots for the Bears, even though they haven't won a Super Bowl since before he was born. I mean, that's got to say something about my faith, right? Maybe some of you like that, and you're going to say, you miss me. But then, Pastor Dawn is coming, right? And she's going to be with you for six weeks. And, and I'm guessing that there's going to be a bunch of you, maybe even more, that are, that are going to say that you love her. And you're going to love her so much that when she leaves, you're going to say, man, I really miss Pastor Dawn. I mean, first of all, I didn't know what it felt like to have a pastor full of hair, right? She's got a full head of hair. That's awesome. I think she roots for the Packers, which says maybe she's more sensible than Pastor Tom. And, and she's a great preacher. Maybe we'll move to California and we'll follow her. Now, now you're going to have people that are going to feel that way, both ways, right? And, and I just want to say, is there anything wrong with, with gravitating toward a specific leader? Is there anything wrong with having a preference? And, and, and the answer to that question is, is, is no. <laughs> That's natural. That's why we have all sorts of different churches and styles and preachers and all these different things. There's actually nothing wrong with that. That's natural. Here's where the problem comes in. Preference is not the mess that Paul is talking about. Preference is not the mess. But allowing those preferences to become more important than what unites you, that's a disaster. That's a disaster. And, and, and I don't even need to preach this part of the sermon because we're living it right now, right? We're living this right now. It seems like Everything around us encourages us to divide on this very thing. It's, it's, it's who you vote for. It's, it's what you think about wearing masks. And it's like we're told that when you get behind something or you get behind someone today, you've got to be all in. And, and if you're not all in, if you're not for us, then you're against us in every way. It's what we call cancel culture. And don't think that it's only happening on one side of the spectrum or the other. It's happening everywhere and it's dividing us it's dividing families every week i talk to a family here at st john's who is feeling division even in their own family over this very thing it's dividing all of us and and, and what i'm saying is that it's dividing us for the same underlying reason that the church in corinth was finding themselves divided here's the thing in the cloud of their preferences they lost sight of what has united them all along as a church to begin with. In the cloud of their preferences, they lost sight of what unites them as a church to begin with. And for the sake of time, let me just say that, that I think we should maybe expect this to happen in the world around us to varying degrees, depending on what's happening in this particular place and time. I think it's human nature, at least until Jesus comes back and and puts everything under his total reign once and for all, forevermore, which is coming. He is coming. That will happen. And so maybe on some level we should expect to see some of this in the places outside the walls of the church. But in the church, in the church, and not just the walls of the church, but, but even the, the big C church, other churches that come together, the church 
should never be divided like that. The church should never be divided like that because every true church is focused on one thing and one thing only, and it's the same thing. It's Jesus. It's Jesus that we're focused on. Look at verse 13. Paul says, is Christ divided? You guys have been dividing over who you've been following, but is Jesus divided? He says, this is Paul talking. He says, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And, and I love this next part because it's like the closest to rambling that you might ever read in the scriptures. He says, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except uh, Christmas and Gaius so that no one can say that they were baptized in my name. Those are the only two I baptized. And then he says, well, actually also I baptized the, the family of, of Stephanus. But beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anybody else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but he sent me to preach the gospel and not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul is describing how the people were dividing in some cases over who it was that baptized them as if the person who baptized them baptized them into their own name and not the name of Jesus. And that's not true. None of those guys were doing that. And, and then Paul says that, that, that he didn't preach with wisdom and eloquence because that was another division point. I'm going to go follow this guy because his preaching is, is more entertaining. It's more eloquent. I, I don't fall asleep. It's a, a person's a better orator. And Paul says, here's the thing. I didn't baptize most of you, and I'm not that entertaining when I come and I preach. And there's a reason for that. Lest the cross of Christ... Be emptied of its power. Now, let me say this. There's nothing wrong with being engaged in a message. I, I try very hard to make sure that, that, that I stay engaged as, as I prepare my messages, and I hope that you engage in God's truth, too. I know Pastor Don does the same thing. There's nothing wrong with having a relationship with the, the pastor that baptized you. I've been at St. John's now for 10 years, and, and I think that that's what makes it so hard to, to go away even for six weeks. I've baptized a lot of your kids. I've baptized some of you. I've done your weddings. I've done your loved ones' funerals. We have a relationship, and, and that's what makes it so hard uh, to be gone, and that's normal. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But those things cannot become the main thing. Those things cannot become the main thing. Because if they do, here's what happens. Here's what happens. What Paul found in the church in Corinth is that people were dividing themselves on this. Because that's what happens. Is you begin to divide yourself on those things. And when you divide yourself on those things, you digress into dividing on lesser and lesser and lesser things. Like whether or not the coffee at your church is delicious. Or whether the pew cushions are soft. Or whether you think that everybody that sits in church next to you thinks the same way as you and votes the same way as you and looks the same way as you. And if that's what you're looking for in a church, if that's what you're looking for, and in so many cases that's what we do and we don't even realize it, if that's what's happening, what it does is it sends a message to the unbelieving world that desperately needs to hear the unifying hope of Jesus. The world is divided and they need an answer that doesn't look like the world. And so when we look like the world, it sends a message that tells the world 
that the church is really no different than the world itself. And if that's true, then what's the point of anybody going, right? I mean, I can get division right from the comfort of my own couch when I turn on cable news on any station. Just pick one. I can get it every time I scroll through social media. I don't need to go to church for that. And so let's go one more verse down. Verse 18, Paul says this. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let me put that another way. The message of the cross is the power of God to anyone who recognizes that they need to be saved. The power of God through the message of the cross comes to anyone who recognizes that they need to be saved. And I say that because there's a lot of us that walk around, I walk around at times like this too, thinking I don't need to be saved from anything, right? I don't need to be saved from anything. I'm right and they're all wrong. And if everybody would just follow me and follow everything I'm following and follow everyone I'm following, that would solve all the problems of the world, right? Like so many of us walk around with that attitude. And if that's you, then this sermon is going to sound like foolishness. And the message that Paul has to share is going to sound crazy. But if you're willing to begin by admitting, you know what? Maybe I am wrong sometimes. Maybe I do need some help. Maybe I do need to be saved. Well, then Paul's entire unity message calls everyone. Everyone that comes from every different perspective on earth, not always changing what their perspective is. It doesn't mean that everybody comes from the same place. It means that everyone looks to the same place, which is the cross. That's why when you gather in our sanctuary, you'll look, and it's just behind me, you'll look at the cross. You could be sitting in any pew, in any place, and everyone from their different places looks forward to the same place, which is the cross. And friends, that's foolishness if your hope is coming from where you're sitting right now. The people that you're sitting with or the perspective that you find yourself in right now. But if you're looking for salvation from something outside yourself, from God and from God alone, the power of the cross has the power to bring us together as one. And how can that work? How, how can the cross unify us? Well, uh, and, and, and I ask that question because somebody might say, well, why, why specifically does Paul say the cross? He means the cross. Why, why doesn't he say that looking at the risen Jesus is what unifies us? Why doesn't he say that looking at the empty tomb, that'll unify everybody? Why doesn't he say that looking up at the clouds and seeing God's presence in nature, that unifies everybody? If we all just go out to a park and experience God's creation, then we'd all be fine. Why is that not what Paul says? That's not what he says. He says, look at the cross. The cross, the message of the cross is what unifies us. What specifically is it about the cross? Well, just think about what happened yesterday. Yesterday was September 11, 2021, which is the 20-year anniversary of the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001. And even 20 years later, what are we doing? We are gathering around the remembering of that moment, that tragic moment, because tragedy 
always seems to to unify us as a country, even if it's only for a moment, it always seems to have that effect, doesn't it? And it doesn't mean that the tragedy in the midst of it means that, that we cease to become different people in those moments, right? Right? There's still Democrats and Republicans and men and women and children and young and old and ethnically diverse and all of those things, right? What unifies us in those moments is that we are together responding to a tragedy. What Paul says here is that the cross does that for the church. The cross does that for Christians. People who follow Jesus don't have to wait for a tragedy to bring them together because the cross points us to a tragedy of eternal proportions. It's the tragedy of our sin. Sin, which for our purposes is simply the very thing that is the root of what divides us between each other and between God. And Paul is appealing to a people that are divided and saying that the only way that you will find unity in this cosmic tragedy of God's own son dying on the cross is looking at the cross and seeing that he died for you. That he died for you. Because if my eyes are on the cross, if my eyes are drawn to Jesus' death on my behalf, it's like like driving by a horrific car accident, right? We've all had that experience if we've been on the road before and you drive by and, and, and you hate what you see, but it's so bad you just can't even help yourself. You can't look away. And if you have somebody else in the car and they don't notice it and they start talking, you say, stop, and you tell them to look and you both stare, right? And the longer you stare, the more you begin to think about its implications on your own life. You think, man, it could have been me in that car, right? If I had left the house five minutes earlier, I could have been in that car accident. You know, we, we, we said the same thing. Those of us that were around and remember where we were 20 years ago said, could have been me in that Twin Tower Could have been me in the Pentagon. Could have been me on that airplane. I've flown on an airplane. And on the case of the cross, in the case of the cross, we look at the cross and we don't say it could have been me. We say it should have been me. It should have been me up on that tree. And so the question now becomes then if that's that's where we find our hope in unifying, where's the hope? It doesn't sound very hopeful to stare into tragedy, right? Where's the hope? Well, that's easy, actually. The hope is when you realize by looking up at that cross, by looking into that tree, that while it should have been you dying on the cross, it wasn't you. It isn't you on that tree. You didn't die on the cross because the message of the cross is that Jesus chose to die on your behalf. He didn't have to. He wanted to. He wanted to because God did not want heaven and earth to be divided anymore. And that fact and that hope becomes the basis from which you and I respond and interact and love everyone, especially people we are divided with. We look at a God who did that for me and we cannot help but do the same for others. It's the same thing that happened on 9-11, right? It's the same thing that happened 18 months ago at the beginning of this pandemic. We went home and we clung to the people that we love, didn't we? 
I remember on Mother's Day last year, I, I bought a sign from, it's called Nailed It Studio in Elkhorn. I know a lot of you have probably checked it out. Really cool local business. And they, um, they had this kit um, that you could put together with your own handprints. These are all of the handprints of everyone in my family. Uh, myself, Alyssa, Jake, Evan, Sophie, and Carlos. And, and it says here, it says, when the world needed to be apart, together was my favorite place to be. When the world needed to be apart, together was my favorite place to be. Friends, I don't know if you've noticed, but the things that are keeping us apart today, just like in ancient Corinth, run far deeper than a pandemic. And that's why we desperately need the cross, just as much as they did. The cross unifies us because it is on the cross where the very root of our division dies and our unity with Jesus rises. Whether you realize it or not, it's the cross that we're all going to be drawn to at some point in our lives. When, when you're on your deathbed and you're, you're grasping for the power of God to save you, you are not going to grasp for your smartphone and watch a sermon that Pastor Tom or Pastor Don or anybody else gave that encouraged you 20 years ago. You're not going to do that. I guarantee you. My sermons have been on a podcast for 10 years. Nobody's ever done that. You won't do that either. A catchy phrase that you heard that inspired you on on a plaque or on anything is not going to carry you through unbearable physical suffering if you have to face that at some point in your life. An articulate argument, an incredible worldly wisdom will not bring peace to your broken heart if you have to say goodbye to a son or a daughter or a spouse. The pastor that sprinkled your head when you were baptized or dunked you into the water does not have the power in and of himself or herself to conquer your death. In all of those things, only the cross can speak into those situations. Only the cross. And it is only the cross that can unify the divisions of our world today by bringing about the unity that begins when we walk through those doors, literally or figuratively, and we nail everything that divides us onto that tree so that our divisions might experience their own death and that we might rise and become the very unified body that Jesus himself created us to be so that we could be his hands and his feet in a broken and divided world. And do you know what he calls that? He calls that the church. That's who we're called to be. And so would you join me right now as we we pray for that to take place. Lord Jesus, the problem with the church in Corinth that the church faced 2,000 years ago is nothing new. We face the same problems they did. Our lives They're just as messy as theirs were, and we need your messy grace just as much as they did. 
And so Jesus, help us to see that. Help us to be a church that is unified, unified around what and who we look toward, which is your cross, which is you, and not known for who and what we are against. Help us to see the way forward in the radical unity vision that Paul outlines here in his letter, a vision for unity that has the power that doesn't just draw us together at St. John's, but Jesus prayed for it. In John 17, our unity has the power to show a divided and broken world that there is hope for them in the love of the Father too. And that coming to fruition isn't about how many groups we offer. That doesn't happen when we have great coffee or super comfortable pew cushions or or who's preaching that particular Sunday, this can only happen if you make us a place where different people from radically different perspectives come together to focus on the only thing that can heal the divisions of our world, and that is the cross. And it begins with us. So as we pray, I ask you, God, would you reveal to me and to every person who is worshiping with us right now, would you reveal to our hearts anything in our lives that we have allowed to become more important, so important that it has divided us from the people around us, or most important that it has divided us from the people of God that you've called us to be a part of in the family of God, which is the church. Help us to see those things And help us to see them nailed to the cross so that we together might become the people who rise and begin living the resurrected life that you invite us into right now. It is in Jesus' name that we 